0: Welcome to the latest at the Flicks on our new series of mini-horror pods.
1: Welcome back from the crypt. Must be a full moon and time for another horror pod short. Our listeners seem to like these things. Always a pleasure to be allowed out as Neil never visits. For this short... I have a question for you. We have spoken many times about the Universal horror films of the 30s, how it made household names of such stars as Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, and how it dwindled out in the 1940s. What I want to know is, what happened before Universal? Were there many horror films in the silent era of cinema?
0: That's a really good question, Graham. And in the strictest sense, the answer is no. You see, horror is a term universal used for their film cycle, starting with Dracula and Frankenstein. Now, in retrospect, they must be kicking themselves for not trademarking the term. Just think how much that would be worth. Now, before 1930, the term for this type of film was spook film very much betraying its American roots and ignoring the rest of the world's contribution to silent horror cinema. How unlike the Americans.
1: Interesting. I I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, and we can test this out on Neil. Would he prefer to be horrified or spooked? Either way, the reaction will be fun to watch. By the way, I see Neil is not with you this month. Has he not recovered from his hereditary out in?
1: I don't think he can talk about it while he's going through therapy.
0: (laughs) Brilliant. My work here is done. Anyway, back to your question. There were many spook movies during the first 35 years of cinema, and two countries really dominated, creating a few classics of the genre, as well as the first recognised star of horror movies. However, before we get into that level of detail, let's start with the very birth of cinema in France. To put this in perspective, we're talking about a time when people would run out of the first cinemas when film was projected showing a train arriving at a station. I guess that would be the 19th century equivalent of film as a roller coaster ride. Let's check this out and try it with Neil. Mind you, he probably remembers what it was like back then. However, quite quickly, people became accustomed to the novelty of film and the next stage was the short feature by short... It would be a length of two to three minutes. And fantasy was the order of the day. One of those very first horror films, Le Manoir de Diable, by George Méliès, made in 1896, and I apologise for my um, <laughs> attempted at uh, 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 trying to pronounce French even. It goes under various titles, so I'm going to stick with the literal translation, which is The House of the Devil, or in America it would have been The Haunted Castle, and in the UK The Devil's Castle. Now what limited plot it had for its brief running time involved the devil almost jokingly tormenting a pair of cavaliers. In fact at one point the devil turns into a bat, technically making this the first vampire movie. And don't forget, this was the year before Dracula was published, and amazingly this film still exists. Graham, can we put a link on our page for anyone who wants to see this on YouTube?
1: I can do that. Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, in fact, I may even watch that one myself. Do any others of these early spook pictures survive?
0: Indeed, they do, Graham. The Lumiere brothers, also French, founding fathers of cinema, made such fantasy films as Le Squillet Joyeux in 1897, translated as The Merry Skeleton, and once again, apologies to any Frenchlessness. <laughs> Uh, We can also provide a link for that. This is only 40 seconds long and shows a dancing skeleton falling apart then putting itself back together again.
1: (laughs) Wow, we haven't got to the 20th century yet and I'm very aware that this is supposed to be a short pod. You mentioned earlier that two countries dominated the spook films. Were they America and France?
0: Half right. America had the resources... And as the people's appetite for film was voracious, they made thousands of all types, including spook. In the early days, I would say this was limited to 15-minute features, up from that two, three minutes I mentioned earlier. And they were usually based on classic novels, such as Frankenstein in 1910 and Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde in 1912. Both of these films survive, and we'll put links in the show notes. But I must tell you something I found very funny when researching this. The opening shot of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a book extract with the
1: heading Graham on Drugs. <laughs> Seriously, I must have a look at that. that, that the, the film that is, uh, not the drugs.
0: Understandable. Until a few years ago, the 1910 Frankenstein film I just mentioned was thought to be lost. It is a fascinating watch. Uh, very different to watching a film today, I can assure you, mainly for the creation of the Frankenstein monster, which shows some very early special effects, uh, which were created by running the camera backwards. I would add there is very little in there that would trouble Neil.
1: (laughs) Another one I'll have to check out. Earlier you mentioned two countries. What was the second one?
0: Germany. It ended up in a unique position because of the war. You see, in 1915, Germany banned all foreign films coming into the country partially as a response to other countries not wanting to see anything German. Then after the war, no one outside of Germany wanted to see German films, partly as a backlash against Germany for the war, and partly because the country was so financially unstable, cinema owners in other countries thought they would never get paid. So under the Weimar Republic, a strong internal German industry developed, and at the heart of that was the cinema of German expressionism.
1: Is that like art expressionism?
0: Yes, it was. Oh. In the cinema version of Expressionism, everything seen on screen reflected the minds of the characters. For example, it could be the clothes, sets or lighting. Of course, given how dark a place the German people were in after World War I, it's no surprise that a large number of these films were either bleak suspense or horror. Sorry, spook. In fact, without that global conflict, our cinematic history would be very different. So World War I wasn't that bad.
1: <laughs> I think you're stretching a point there, aren't you, Jeff? Uh, how on earth could something a century ago be influencing films today? I haven't noticed it in the Marvel Cinematic Universe.
0: Oh, I see you're taking the lowest common denominator for a response. <laughs> <laughs> what next? We'll talk about Ant-Man. OK, the influence was in a number of ways. Firstly, there were those directors who learned their craft through the technique, and when Hitler's rise to power began, moved to other countries to make their films, which was usually America. An example of this is Fritz Lang, whose career began as a director in 1919, and who went on to use expressionism in such films as Metropolis in 1927, and M, by the hunt for a child murder in 1931, and then after that he left to go to America. There, he was one of the main creators of Film Noir, which is just another example of German expressionism and can be seen in such films as The Woman in the Window, 1944, and The Big Heat, 1953. Mm-hmm. Then there was the other way, directors who were sent to Germany to learn the expressionist craft. The main one who we remember today is Alfred Hitchcock. He was sent to Germany in 1924. Look at his films like The Lodger, 1927, Blackmail, 1929, and Psycho, 1960. Without doubt... Hitchcock has remained one of the most influential directors of all time, and as a result, some of these expressionist techniques survive today. And that continuation of German Expressionism can be seen in such films as anything really Tim Burton makes, Batman Returns as a cracking example, Blade Runner, and horror films like The Crow.
1: Uh, no, that's amazing. I, I'd never seen this connection before. Oh, okay. Well, to quote
0: Al Jolson... You ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) Uh, Out of this initial expressionist movement came two horror classics, both from Germany, and luckily both of these works are now out of copyright and links to them can be found again in the show notes. Remember copyright, because I'm going to come back to that shortly with a copyright in issue. But let's start on the first true classic of spook cinema, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which was released in 1920. The version linked to in the show notes is a fantastic restored one with the colour tinting added back in well worth an hour of anybody's time. By the way, do you know what the colour tinting is? No, no idea. Alright, so the earliest films where they wanted to reflect a mood uh, and obviously everything was in black and white, they would literally Uh... tint the film a particular colour. So um, if they wanted it night, it would add a purplish tint to it Uh, and things like that to just give it that bit of a feel before proper color techniques came in now i won't go too much into the plot of the film of dr caligari you can discover it for yourself although perversely uh, i know that's not like me graham i'm going to talk about the end in a couple of minutes so if you want to see it first i suggest turning off this short watch the film via our show notes link and then come back for the rest of this podcast still here okay let's talk about that ending Essentially, it is all about the evil Dr. Caligari, played by Werner Krauss, who has total control over a sonambulist. A what? A sonambulist. A person in a strange sleep condition, <laughs> who in this case is set off on sleepwalking kill missions by Caligari against people who have wronged him. The sonambulist is played by Conrad Veit, who later went to Hollywood, again in the 30s, and played the lead Nazi in Casablanca. Um, He died quite young after that. Unfortunately, he's only 43. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is a strange film with jagged sets reflecting a fractured state of mind and a wonderful use of shadow. The only problem with the film, and this is something critic Kim Newman has picked up on, is as in so many other early spook films, they nullify themselves by having the whole movie revealed at the end to be nothing but a dream. And this film with its bizarre, usual suspects-type ending, is no different. Thankfully, the other classic I'm going to talk about doesn't have that sort of ending. It's a proper, proper ending, proper spook ending, although this is the film where the copyright problem I mentioned comes in.
1: What is the film, uh, and can we add a link to it?
0: The film is Nosferatu, and yes, we can add a link to it. In fact, there is a wonderful restored version available, which we can add the link to in the show note, which again includes colour tints.
1: I've seen bits from this film. Uh, The lead vampire is a famous image.
0: Indeed it is. While The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari remains a highly acclaimed work amongst film scholars, Nosferatu remains active in popular culture to this day. It influenced Stephen King's TV version of Salem's Lot, was remade directly in 1979 with Klaus Kinski as the vampire, and also had a truly bizarre film made about it called The Shadow of the Vampire.
1: What was strange about The Shadow of the Vampire?
0: It showed the lead actor of Nosferatu, as played by Willem Dafoe in in Shadow mm. of the Vampire, as a real vampire tricked into making the film. <laughs> right. uh, so, so this whole mystique is built around Nosferatu over the years, and yet, by rights, the film shouldn't even exist.
1: What? Really?
0: Yeah, because although all the names have been changed, this is the Dracula story as written by Bram Stoker, In fact, Stoker's widow successfully sued her with the film and all prints were ordered to be destroyed. Thankfully, some survived, and its classic status is then assured, although she never got paid anything. All the main elements of the Dracula stories are there, although the lead vampire is renamed Count Orlok in a foolish attempt to avoid copyright. (laughs) Orlok traps young Jonathan Harker, or as he's known here, Thomas Hutter, in his castle. He then organises a ship to take him to Germany and begin a reign of terror. The ending differs greatly from the book, but then most versions of Dracula do. Nosferatu has all the elements of German expressionism, as can be seen in the sets and the lighting. The lead character, Count Orlok, as played by Max Schreck, is an unforgettable monster of evil. The ending is also one of the greats of cinema history. In fact, the film has much depth to it. Reflecting the time in which it was made. The sequences of rats bringing plague across the German town when Orlok arrived. Brings back the horrors of the Spanish flu of a few years before. It's very clever. Also, as Nosferatu is a silent film, every few years a composer will be inspired to write a new musical score for it. Hmm. There have been many such scores over the years and there are two I have heard which I find very impressive. One is by Philip Glass. Oh,
1: yeah, I'm a big fan of Philip I yeah. I haven't heard this.
0: Oh, it's worth tracking down. Oh, it's right, okay. Uh, and the others by James Bernard. Now, Mr. Bernard was Hammer Horror's composer of choice, and he wrote those fantastic scores for Dracula over the years. In 1997, he brought a touch of that Hammer class to Nosferatu. Have a listen to this excerpt from the overture, which he wrote for The silent classic. <laughs>
1: Pardon the pun, but that is full-blooded.
0: Exactly, and I hope to come back and talk about James Bernard in a future podcast.
1: I look forward to it. So, returning to the silent screen, Germany seems to have had the edge with their films. Yes, they did. Although it was America which created the first
0: horror movie star, being one lone Chaney. Mr Chaney started as a theatre actor before going to film. Back in the early days of silent cinema, there were no makeup artists. Instead, many of the actors who came from the theatre... Brought a tradition of doing their own stage makeup. Lone Chaney, it turns out, was one of the early greats of makeup effects. His ability, coupled with his skill as a character actor, soon got Lone Chaney noticed by the public and he was very much in demand. His performances as the frog in The Miracle Man 1920 and as an amputee in The Penalty also 1920, are remarkable, and before too long, he
1: was the star of a series of horror classics. You mentioned earlier that American spook films were usually based on on famous books. Did Lon Chaney make any of those?
0: Yes, he did. In fact, his greatest performances were as The Hunchback of Notre Dame Ah, and The Phantom of the Opera. Mm -hmm. Now, I was very fortunate a couple of years ago to watch the 1923 version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame as part of the Bristol Film Festival. The film itself was screened in Bristol Cathedral and had an organ accompaniment. Oh,
1: wow, that must have been impressive.
0: Yeah, it was. In fact, at one point, I had to wander around the church and nearly got lost, and that was a little bit scary, but that's <laughs> another story. Now, the only problem is, Universally made this film, their most successful silent movie, allowed the copyright to lapse, and no one has ever restored the film. It's very badly worn. Although the sets and Chaney's magnificent performances in incredible makeup, do shine through. Again, if you want to see it, a link to the film is in the show notes. Now, one thing with Lone Chaney and his great roles, he was not afraid to be unsympathetic. There is a real madness with his hunchback and phantom characterizations, which lead actors would avoid today. And as for the full reveal of the phantom when his mask comes off, it occurs about 45 minutes into the film, even today, bloody hell... <laughs> Cheney suffered to get that phantom shock effect. He used painful false teeth and metal clips to make his face more skull like, actually pushing his nose up to the top of his face. It is said members of the audience passed out from seeing the phantom (laughs) in 1925, and to be honest, it's not hard to see why. Again, we have a link to the phantom in the show notes. This has also been restored, and the colour tints are back in. Well worth a look. Now at this time, mid-1920s, Lone Cheney's star power was at its height. One of the most popular jokes of that period from comic Jim Dilley was, don't step on that bug, that's Lone Cheney. <laughs> Years later, there was even a film made about him. James Cagney starred as The Man with a Thousand Faces, 1957. And although most of it is fiction, as Cheney was a very protective of his personal life. It nevertheless is worth seeing for some of the recreations of scenes from some of his most famous films.
1: What happened to Lon Chaney? How come he didn't get involved in the Universal films?
0: Well, if you count The Hunchback and Notre Dame as a Universal monster movie, technically he was involved. Huh. Unfortunately, in reality, he was diagnosed with lung cancer and he died in 1930, just before they started. He was just 47 years old. It is said he was Universal's first choice to play Dracula, not Bella Lugosi, and that would have been interesting. Although I have my doubts about that story because Lugosi at this time was wowing them with the stage performance uh, role of Dracula. As Ray Bradbury was to say of Lone Chaney years later, He was someone who acted out our psyches. He somehow got into the shadows inside our bodies. He was able to nail down some of our secret fears and put them on screen. As a postscript to this, Lone Son Crichton changed his name to Lone Chaney Jr. And he did become part of the Universal Horror Cycle. He was the wolfman in the series. And he
1: was also a good horror actor in his own right. Are you setting the scene nicely to talk about Universal's Horror Cycle?
0: That is for the future... Looking out, daylight looks like it's about to come, so it's time for me to go on our own silent horror Neil to emerge from his safe place until the next time.
1: Before we meet again, I might even try watching some of these, provided they're not too frightening. That's it for this horror short. See you at the next full moon. (laughs)